This morning, this morning I want you to, the, the question that Christmas poses to us this morning is the question, <laughs> what's next? What's next? Uh, around the Krim house, we, we've, had, we've had lots going on. Steve and his family came in, and, and Kathy and her family are still here, and so we've had, we've had 10 people and a dog. And, and it's been raining. <laughs> so that means we haven't gone outside much. That means we've all been inside. And so, you know, I guess one of the things that I'm thinking about what's next <laughs> is it may be a little quieter, <laughs> okay? And, and I don't know where you are with Christmas, you know, and you get all built up and all this excitement. And then a lot of times that's just kind of the way life goes. Sometimes you have these big events through life but then when the big event is over, the question is, well, what's next? It's a relevant question. As a matter of fact, those of you guys that will be graduating this year, those of you that will be either senior, that are seniors in high school or those of you that are seniors in college and now that you've graduated, the question that is always put to our graduates is what? What's next? Where do you go to from here? Uh, this afternoon, this afternoon, I'm going to be conducting the funeral service for Missy Wampler, 47 years old, and she died on Tuesday. The very relevant question in the mind of mom and dad and husband and brother and family members and friends, the relevant question is what? After death, what is next? What's next? And so... I put you before you the question this morning, this specific Sunday. I was sharing with some of you guys this morning as I was greeting you. Well, I don't know whether to say Merry Christmas or Happy New Year or just both because we're kind of right in the middle here. But the big question is, what's next? What's next for you in 2016? It's a relevant question because what you see in the future will affect what you do today. And so, a sign of maturity, a sign of maturity is a person who will determine what they do today in light of what they anticipate next. People that are able to make decisions today sexually, people that can make decisions today financially, people who can make decisions today about just life in general, about how they behave and what they do and what they get involved in if they can make those decisions today, not just looking at the now, but also be able to look at what's next in the future. Because what you decide now will influence what's next. What's next. And what road you go down. And what future you have. And so the question that I put before you this morning, as we've all thought about Jesus' first advent and His first coming, that's what advent means, is coming. Jesus' first coming well, what's next? What is it that we, the church, God's people, you, believers, followers of Jesus, what is it that we have to look forward to what's next? And the question that is consistently put to the church through the writers of the gospel, through Jesus himself, and through the apostles, whether it be the apostle Paul or Peter or any of the others, the question that they put to you is, will you be ready? 
Will you be ready for what's next? And so what I want to show you this morning in the scripture is what's next. What's next? And so let's look as I compare his first coming. That's the past. That's history. We're, 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 we're enjoying the benefits of that right here, right now. But what's next? And so let's look first of all, as we look at his first coming and his next coming. The first time Jesus came in a cradle, in a manger. The next time, the Bible says he's coming in the clouds. What do I mean when I say first time he came in a cradle? Well, what I mean by that is the first time Jesus came in his humility. He came in his humility. Everything about Jesus' coming into this world, his first time, his first advent, is all about humility. Where was he born? O little town of Bethlehem. And when he talks about little town of Bethlehem, he's talking about that's, just, that's one of those obscure towns. You would never expect the King of kings and the Lord of lords to be born in Bethlehem. It's like saying that the King of kings is born in Grundy, Virginia, far southwest Virginia, just one of these obscure places that not all that many people know about, humble beginnings. And then look at his parents. His parents were poor people. They were from Nazareth. And when they brought an offering to the Lord, they, they couldn't bring the fatted calf. They, they brought just the, the, the offering of poor people. They brought the, the, the doves, the pigeons to the Lord. And, and, and we, we find out that, that uh, when, when Matthew helps us to look, to see the kind of people that, that were, were, were brought to worship Jesus, we, we find out that the Magi, even though they were of the academic community. They were the PhDs. They were perhaps the professors in the universities. And they were not only of the intellectually elite, but they were also of the, uh, of, of the socially elite. And, and they were of, of those of, of, of wealth. But the emphasis that, that Matthew places on these wise men, these magi that came to Jesus from the East, is not on their wealth, not on not on their social status, but the emphasis that Matthew puts on them is on what? Their humility. How they knelt and bowed down and fell on their face before Jesus and humbled themselves before Him. And so all of the Christmas story is about humility. He came in a cradle. He came in His humility because He came to save. As a matter of fact, as Paul writes in the book of Philippians, as he emphasizes this man, Jesus himself, who is going to be our Savior, he emphasizes in his first advent, his first coming, he emphasizes Jesus' humility, his humility, a humility that resulted in a complete and perfect obedience to the Father. Listen to the way Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 2. Being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. You notice the connection? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. What, what is the root problem of disobedience? The root problem of disobedience of, of a person that wants to do what I want to do, be who I want to be, have what I want to have, your root problem is your pride. But Jesus came in his humility. And it says that he was obedient to the point 
of death, even death on a cross. I don't know how you feel when, when you've been punished for something that you got caught for and you got punished for it. But what happens when you accept the penalty for somebody else's wrongdoing? And that's what Jesus did. He, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And death on the cross meant that you were accepting the penalty upon yourself. He received upon Himself the curse of sin. And so He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, because of that, He is our Savior. Therefore, God highly exalted Him, bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that at that name Jesus every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Because of that, he established him as our Savior because of his humility. The first time Jesus came in a cradle, in the manger, first time, that's his humility. He came for us as a Savior, but the second time, what's next? The next time, he's not coming in a cradle. He's coming in the clouds. Matthew chapter 24, verses... verses uh, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 and 31. Listen to what he has to say. For to everyone, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give off its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth the angels and a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. What is that business about him coming in the clouds? In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel describes the Lord God Almighty coming in judgment. And the description that he gives of the Lord God Almighty coming in judgment is that when he comes in the clouds. And, and Matthew's telling us as Jesus, as he records Jesus' words, Matthew describes for us when Jesus comes back the second time, he's coming in the clouds. And that means he's coming the first time, he came the first time to save. He's coming the second time to judge, to judge. You might think to yourself, is there really going to be a time in the future Next, where God judges me? Well, think about it this way. There was a time in history, Matthew chapter 26, around verse 64, describes a time when Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal God, stood before the high priest named Caiaphas. And Caiaphas and the council and the elders and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, they had Jesus stand before them and they literally judged Jesus. They judged Jesus. And they condemned Jesus. And Jesus said to Caiaphas, in my own words, <laughs> Jesus said to Caiaphas, Caiaphas, today I stand before you and you judge me. But in verse 64, 26, Jesus says to him, there's coming a day when I'm coming in the clouds and I'm going to judge you. And with that response, Caiaphas said, you're blaspheming. Be killed. 
Because he was claiming to be God. Jesus claims to be God. Jesus is the one who says, I'm coming to judge you. You're judging me now, but I'm coming back next time to judge you. There was another time, the next day, when Jesus stood before, literally it says in, in uh, the next chapter, that Jesus stood before the judgment seat of Pilate. Imagine that. The eternal God leaving heaven, coming down the face of the earth, standing face to face before a man named Pilate, and this man judges God. Judges God. In my wildest dreams, in your wildest imagination, would you ever think that there would be a time when man would judge God? But there's a sense in which every single day, every single person has to decide and make a judgment about what you will do with God. And what God's telling us in His Word is, yes, while you are judging, making judgments of yourself, making decisions of what you will do with God, there is coming a day, right now you have that opportunity to decide what you'll do with God. But there's coming a day, what's next, is He's going to decide what to do with you. What He will do with you. That means He's coming as your judge. So the first time... He came in a cradle. Next time he's coming in a cloud. First time he came in his humility. Next time he's coming in his glory. First time he came as Savior. The next time he's coming as your judge. The first time, secondly, the first time Jesus came to raise the Spirit. The next time he's coming to raise the body. First time he came to raise the Spirit. Next time he's coming to raise, <clears throat> he's coming to raise the body. If you got your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter 5, and I want you to look with me at verse 24. The Bible speaks to us about two resurrections, two resurrections, okay? Here's the first one. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, what happens? He's got eternal life. And because he's got eternal life, he does not come into judgment. When does that judgment come? Next. Right now, right here, you hear his word, you believe in him. When you do that now, next, you will not come into judgment. And, but instead, he has passed out of death into life. Already you've passed out of death into life. What is he talking about? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to help us know a little bit about what he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. And he talks about a spiritual condition here and the spiritual condition of those of us who have not believed in Jesus and his word. The Bible describes it as being dead. Here's how he says, You were dead, Ephesians, in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. In other words, you followed the crowd. Why do you follow the crowd? Why do you do what they're doing? It's because you're following the, the course of the world. Why is it that you won't take a stand of Jesus? And why do you follow this way? It's because you're dead. Spiritually, you're dead. And that's why you go that way. It's according to the prince of the power of the air. You're following the, the deceit and the deception of nothing less than Satan himself. Why do you go that direction? It's because we're dead. And he says, it's, it's the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And so that's a description of a person who's spiritually dead. It's a person who's disobedient. It's a person who goes along with the crowd. 
even though it's contrary to what God's revealed to us in his word and taking a stand for Christ, the problem is he's spiritually dead. In other words, all across the Roanoke Valley today and literally all across the world, and there's even some that are here today. Some of you are here. You're showing all the signs outwardly of being alive. But guess what? The Bible says you're dead. You're spiritually dead. You may have gotten up and put on your clothes this morning. You maybe had a cup of coffee. Maybe, you know, you combed your hair. Those of us who have hair. and You know, you, you, you just kind of get up and you show all the signs outwardly of being very much alive. You even get up and you come to church. But you're dead. But you're dead. What are the vital signs? How does a person know that they're dead? Well, for one thing, there's the vital sign when somebody... When somebody has died, you, 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 you want to find out if they got a pulse. You want to find out if there's a heartbeat. And if there's no heartbeat, then that person is dead. A person who is dead spiritually, their heart does not beat for God. There's no passion for the Lord. And, and somebody that's dead doesn't have an appetite. You could, take, you could take a steak, you could take a, a wonderful Christmas meal and put it before them, and they have no desire to eat. There's no appetite there. There's no thirst there. Those are signs that somebody's dead. And, and, and a person who's spiritually dead has no heart that beats for God. They have no appetite for God's Word. They have no thirst for being with, with, with God's people and giving praise to Him. And the, the problem with that person is, they're spiritually dead. And, and we as a church and I as a pastor can try to educate you the best that I can and educate you and teach you about Jesus. And yes, I can even try to motivate you and try to encourage you and inspire you to give your life to Jesus Christ and, and parents and, and even children encouraging their parents, trying to motivate them to come to church and learn about Christ, to give their life to Christ. But ultimately, ultimately, the role of the church is not just simply education. It's not just simply motivation because all we got to do is, I mean, in, in, the, in, in the final analysis, if, if all we're doing is educating and motivating and all you got in the final analysis is, a, is, a, is an educated, motivated dead man. And what, what the dead person needs is life. And that's the whole reason of the first advent. Jesus came down here on the face of this, on the face of this earth in His humility to save us from our spiritual condition of death. And when we invite Jesus into our life and give Him our life, we come alive in Christ. We come alive in Christ. That's the first resurrection that this is speaking about. But Jesus goes on and He speaks to us about another resurrection. As we go down into verse 28, He says, Do not marvel at this. There's coming an hour. What hour is He speaking of when Jesus comes again? There's coming an hour. That's how he refers to it. He says there's coming an hour. It's out there. We don't know when it's going to be. But there's a def definitive hour that's coming in the future. And in which all who are in the tombs, those who have died, those who are out there on, on, uh, on airport road, and uh, those that are in the cemeteries, it doesn't make any difference if they're believers or unbelievers. Follow me on this. Do not marvel at an hour is coming in which those, all who are in the terms, they're going to hear his voice. When he comes back, the Bible's explicit of the fact that everybody's going to know it. There's going to be the sound of the trumpet, the voice of the archangel, and people are going to know that he's coming back. And when he comes back, the tombs are going to be open. They're going to hear his voice, and they're going to come forth. 
And those who did good, what does that mean? What is the good that you need to do? There's only one thing that you can do that's good in the eyes of God, and that's to trust Jesus so that His righteousness comes upon you. All of our personal righteousness is His filthy rags. But when we trust Him, His righteousness is given to you. Those who did good, those who trusted Him to a resurrection of life, those physical bodies that are buried in the tomb, they're coming out. And they're going to have a resurrection of life. The same way that Jesus came out of the tomb after He was crucified on the, on the cross and He was buried in the tomb and three days later He came out. And He had a, he had a resurrected body. And it was a new body. And, and that's the kind of body that we're going to take on. It's going to be a resurrected body. And those who did good, those who accepted Jesus, those who believed Him to a resurrection of life, and those who committed evil, those who rejected him, those in their judgment of Jesus, they refused him to a resurrection of judgment, to a resurrection of judgment. And so that's what we have in the future. That's his first coming. And what's next? His second coming. And either you'll live eternally in a resurrected body with eternal life with Jesus or you spend an eternity in a resurrected body of eternal punishment in hell. And that's what the future is. That's what's next. And then thirdly, the first time Jesus came to endow the servant, and the next time he's coming to inspect for the fruit of faithfulness. The first time, to endow the servants. And the second time, he's coming to inspect for faithfulness. That's Matthew chapter 25. And uh, it's the parable of the talents. And let me just kind of summarize the, the parable of the talents. The story starts off in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in about verse 14. There's, there's this, this master who's going off on a journey. But before he leaves, before he leaves and goes off on a journey, he gives to his servants talents, his own possessions, possessions of, 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 of the master. And he's going to entrust these possessions that, have, that are his to, to his servants. And to one he gives five. They call them talents. The other one he gives two. And to another one he gives one. And then he goes off. The idea is this. Jesus came the first time. Now those of us who are believers, followers of Jesus, servants of his, he has endowed us that's the endowment. He's endowed us with nothing less than that which is His. The possession, His possessions. And, and He's given them to us. And He leaves. And He's gone on a journey. Right now, He's, he's in heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father and He's on His throne. But we're waiting for Him to return. And that's what this, that's what this parable is all about. And so while He's gone... What do these guys do? What do these three guys do? Well, the first guy that gets the five, he goes out and he takes some risks. Okay, there's always a risk of losing it. There's always a fear of failure to try to do something and to not work out. But he takes those five talents. He, he takes for that which God has given to him and he begins to invest it. And the guy that gets the couple of talents, he does the same thing. But the guy that gets the one, the guy that gets the one, he takes it and he buries it. He buries it. He takes no risks. 
He's got all kinds of excuses, all kinds of reasons, but he tries to shift the blame off on the master, but he just buries it. And then the story says he comes back. The master comes back again. It's the second coming. It's the second advent. And on that second advent, what Jesus wants us to know, you and I are going to be held accountable for that which God has given to us. What have we done with that? What have you done with the Jesus that he's given to you? Have you taken that and invested it in other people's lives? Have, have, have you taken that and shared the gospel with somebody else? Have you gotten involved in ministry so that other people might know how it is that Jesus has saved you and, and, and how he has put the deposit of, of the kingdom in your life so that you can go and share it with others? Jesus had an audience. Jesus had an audience, and the audience that Jesus had were the most religious people on the face of the earth. They were the Jews. They had more revelation of God than anybody else on the face of the earth. But what did they do with it? They kept it to themselves. They did not share it. Basically, they took it and they hid it in the ground. They took the lamp, the light of the gospel, and they put it under the bushel. And they kept it there. And God is saying to those that are, that are listening to him, it's a tragedy and it's wrong to take the endowment that Jesus has given to us, nothing less than himself, and to keep that to ourselves. And Jesus wants us to hear as, as a church, as individual believers, as a, as, as a body of Christ, he wants us to know that we can't keep this to ourselves. Luke chapter 15 is a story about those people who are those that get excited about going out and finding the lost sheep and bringing them in. And, and it's a story about a, a guy that's called the prodigal son. And, 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 he, and he goes off and he squanders his, his father's estate and he finally bottoms out. <laughs> Have you bottomed out yet? Huh? Have you bottomed out yet? And if you haven't come to your senses and you haven't come to God yet, you haven't bottomed out. But this guy bottomed out. And he finally says, I got to go back. And basically, he crawled back. He came back on his knees, so to speak. And he repented of his sin. There's that humility. And there's the father standing there waiting for him. And his father rejoices that he finally bottoms out. And he finally humbles himself and comes back home. And the, and, and the father embraces him in his love. And they rejoice and they have a big party. But there's somebody in Luke chapter 15 that stands out like a sore thumb. You know who that is? It's the older brother. You know what the problem with the old brother is? The older brother is so preoccupied with the maintenance of the farm that he can't even get excited over seeing a lost person saved. Folks, there's a message there for you and I as we wait for Jesus to come back again. Is he going to see a group of people that have been so preoccupied with the maintenance on the farm, what's going on within the church, how we're doing things within the church to the extent that we fail to go out there and share the light of the gospel with others, to take that which he has endowed us with, with the gospel, and to share it. Last, well, just a couple of nights ago, Christmas Eve, a few nights ago, Many of you maybe were here. We had, had, a, had a wonderful crowd at this service and, and, and the 10 o'clock service. And a part of that service, the way we conclude that service, is what we, what, what we call a candle lighting. And everybody gets a candle. 
And we turn the lights down as low as we can. And we light those candles. And we hold those candles up. From my perspective, I'm standing up here and I see that and I thought, wow, that's impressive. That's even kind of moving. (laughs) You know, it's just exciting to see all of us as lights of the world. But what do we do before we leave? And we do, do it for lots of reasons. I understand that. But what do we do? We blow it out. And we put the candle in the box. And we leave. Jesus wants us to carry the light within the world. He's going to hold us accountable for that. When Jesus comes back, he says to the guy that took the risk of sharing the gospel, whether it be a five-talent guy or whether it be a two-talent guy, those guys took the risk. And there's risks. There's risks involved in sharing Christ with others. There's risk involved in investing in people's lives with the gospel. There's risk involved. But those who are willing to take the risk, even if they lose it, well done, good and faithful servant. But to the guy that keeps it to himself, hoards it for himself, Jesus says there's a place for you and it's a place of eternal suffering. There's coming a time when I'm coming back and I'm going to inspect your lives to see how authentic that endowment really was and how you put it to use. We stand on the brink of, of, of a new year. Are you ready? Are you ready for His coming? I've given you six things why you should be ready. Quickly, I'll just list them. I've I've extracted these things out from all the different places where the New Testament speaks about Jesus coming again. And here you go. One of the places it tells us you need to be ready, that is the church's proper response to the certain yet unknown date of Jesus' second advent, is to be ready because there'll be no escape. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide when Jesus comes back again. You read Revelation chapter 6 and you'll, you'll see that. There's no excuse. God has gone to great extents to get the gospel to you. There's not a single person here today that has a single excuse for not giving their life to Christ. There'll be no second chances. There'll be no shared righteousness. I'm not going to get to heaven because my mother and father were good Christian people. My children are not going to get to heaven because I'm a preacher. My grandkids are not going to get to heaven because they can say their grandfather or their father, their other grandfather was a preacher. You can't share that righteousness. You have to stand on your own two feet. There's no last minute preparation. So many passages say that when Jesus comes back again, it's going to be like a thief that comes in the night. It's going to come all of a sudden and when you least expect it. There's no time for last minute preparation. And then finally, and perhaps maybe the saddest of all, there'll be no mercy. Time and time again, the scripture teach us this today is the day of salvation. This is the day of grace. This is the day that Jesus says, you come to me and your sins are forgiven. But there's coming a day next where he says, if you've, in your judgment, you've rejected me, then when that day comes, I'll reject you. 
We stand on the threshold of a brand new year. We've got our life ahead of us. What will we do with Christ? I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads for a moment. And I want you to pray with me. I'm going to ask uh, Marshall and Jill to, and Michael to come on up. I want us to have a few minutes of prayer this morning. I want to share a couple of things with you that uh, I, I, I trust and I hope that it will help you to understand and, and to realize the importance of taking advantage of the now in preparation for the what's next. As I shared with you already, you might say the untimely, and yet Missy Wampler has, has been struggling with an incurable disease for, for quite some while. And yet that family and, and, and those friends are dealing with the fact that she's no longer here. And there's going to be a day when that can be said about us. Are we ready for that? I'd like for us to, to just kind of start off this new year. There might be someone that you're praying for specifically. There might be that issue in your life that you're dealing with in your life. And, and if, if the Lord were to come today to hold you accountable for that, it would not be good news. And you need to deal with that today. As we have a time of prayer, and as we have a time of, of reflection, as this song is sung, those of you that want to make renewed commitments to Jesus, renewed surrender to Him, we just consider this stage an altar. Those of you that want to come, if you want to come to me personally, if you want to come and just bow and have a prayer, to, maybe, maybe it's a family, maybe it's a couple, maybe it's, Maybe it's a friend that you've had a, 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 a strained relationship with and you need to get it right and start off a new year on the right foot. Let's just, let's just devote this time to how the Lord wants to move among us and lead us and prepare us for that which is next. Let's devote this time to Him right now. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we approach a brand new year, I pray, Heavenly Father, that we will not be content to just kind of go through the motions. The Father will be sensitive to how your Spirit is working in the now to ultimately prepare us for that which is next. God, we want to be those kind of servants that you they come before you and that you're pleased with and say, well done, good and faithful servant. God, we want to be a faithful church. We want to be faithful members. God, we want to carry the gospel to the world that's around us. May we encourage each other as we, as we do that together. God, give to us vision. Give to us the, the, the willingness to take risks. God, to go out and to, to invest that which you have given to us and others. God, I thank you for these, these your people that you've gathered together at North Roanoke Baptist Church. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that we have the privilege and the joy of being known 
as your body and your people and your family. And now, Father, as we, as we prepare for a brand new year, God, thank you that we go in the power of your Holy Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.